0: Now entering Nerdist.com.
1: Today's Nerdist Writers panel was recorded at ATX Television Festival in Austin. That's Austin's best television festival. No offense, none taken. Uh, Badges are already on sale for next year's festival, and I know they have some amazing things being cooked up. Uh, It'll be hard to top this year's festival, which boasted screenings and guests from Orange is the New Black and The Strain and... Fargo and kind of everything great, uh, Andy Daly's review, all kinds of terrific things. Um, But they are going to indeed try to top it and there's going to be lots of cool stuff next year uh, starting on June 4th, I believe. Go to ATXfestival.com It's the Nerdist Writers' Panel and it's hosted by Ben Blecker where he gets a bunch of writers and he asks them lots of questions and it's starting now so this will be the end of the theme.
2: Uh, we're going to start with David Madden. He is the president of Fox TV Studios. David, come on up. Next up, we have Liz uh, Tiglar. I hope that's right. Uh, <laughs> and she has written on many of your favorite shows Nashville, Once Upon a Time, Brothers and Sisters. Currently working on Bates Motel, really great show, and also the creator of Life Unexpected, Liz Tiglar. <laughs> Uh, next, we have Mark Johnson. He is a producer of many, 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 many films, including the Oscar winning Rain Man. Look up his film resume sometime, it's seriously impressive. On television, he's done such shows as Rectify, terrific show, uh, the upcoming Battle Creek, the just started Halt and Catch Fire, and a show you may have heard of called Breaking Bad. Uh, Mark Johnson. Now we have uh, Brian Seabury. He is the Vice President of Drama Development at CBS. And finally, the patron saint of the Austin Television Festival, uh, Mr. Kyle Killen, creator of Lone Star Awake and Mind Games. So uh, I want to start by talking about the the world of drama on television right now. Just real briefly right down the line, you only get to name one. What's your favorite drama on right now that you do not work on, or have on your network in some capacity?
3: I don't mean to be a cliche, but I probably have to say Game of Thrones.
4: Orange is the New Black.
5: Uh, yeah, I'll come but right,
1: right after you.
2: You got
0: the microphone. Fargo, Fargo, right now, yeah. Cool. Do you have a tie? No. Okay. I still got to go with Mad Men.
5: Okay. Um, and even though it's off, uh, uh, True Detective. Can I awesome. do that?
2: Awesome. So we have a really rich range of shows there. It really speaks to the wonderful uh, depth of TV drama right now. Um, when I talk to people who are really into TV, especially younger people, they sort of tend to think that The Sopranos is when like, TV drama started and before that was all you know, Kojak and Mannix running around in trench coats or whatever, sucking on lollipops. Um, I am wondering if there are shows before The Sopranos that you all think are really important touchstones for the medium of dramatic television that, that people should be getting caught up on.
0: Uh, I mean, I guess I'll start talking. (laughs) Uh, I mean, uh, for me, ER was sort of my seminal experience with uh, television drama. And in a way, having done it now, it's more impressive because they were cranking out 22 of those a year. And they were all at an incredibly high level. And I was... it was an episodic show that I was deeply involved in the serialized nature of. Like, it kind of does everything that uh, that I've aspired to. Like, I just haven't figured out how they did it. It's really impressive, and so I think you know the Sopranos and all these the, the idea of uh, you know television as novels is has ushered in sort of this golden age of amazing dramatic television. I just think it's crazy that they were doing that. Before that was supposed to be the level that you had to be at. Sure. Oh, oh. oh. Um. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh thank you, <laughs> Mr. President. <laughs> I guess the one that springs to mind for me is moonlighting. Um, I, that was that was mind blowing for me, even at a young age. I was watching these two people. I was watching almost like a an invented language, um, a tone. Uh, a pace that I had never seen before. I just knew that I loved it, and I was racing to watch it every every week, every bit of it. The serialized stuff, the you know, will they, won't they? The case, all of it. It just felt like it was incredibly special and just stuck out in a really unique way. Uh,
5: I I think there's several shows that just. At the time, because I was younger, and I just thought they seemed so seamless, and I never talked of, thought of them so much as, "Oh, this is great writing." But everything from the, you know, the X Files to MASH to anything with James Garner—it just they were really well written. Some of them are comedy, some of them drama, but it's it was really entertaining, enjoyable television.
4: I loved Little House on the Prairie. Like, <laughs> still, <laughs> could reenact scenes, loved it. I mean, for me. I used to watch it after school at 5 o'clock every day, and um, I don't know. In a weird way, it kind of taught me storytelling and also a good lesson in adaptation from the books.
3: (laughs) Well, I I was kind of like one of those younger guys who didn't really get uh, into TV until The Sopranos. I was a feature person through the 80s and 90s and didn't actually watch a lot of television, so when you ask that question, I date myself, the shows I think of are Twilight Zone and Star Trek, which to me are, are two shows that I always come back to as shows that actually try to explore deeper philosophical things within the context of half hour, hour, hour drama so those are two I go back to Okay,
2: Absolutely, so just uh, you know, briefly, what are the things you can do now that you couldn't do then, not even in terms of content like we all know cable lets you do more violence uh, sexual content, things like that what is the audience more prepared to accept now in terms of storytelling and dramas than they were even ten years
3: ago
4: well, it's funny. I was just talking about, we were just talking about this in the bar, um, but um, the idea, I think so many people are gravitating toward cable now in a way, and I, I think kind of instinctively you're saying like, oh, I want to, I, at least I can say myself, like, oh, I want to write for cable because you can, not that I'm in any way a violent or edgy person, but, like, you could be more violent, you could be more edgy, you could say fuck, you could da-da-da. And it feels enticing, but when you really look at story structure, I mean, I've broken down episodes of Breaking Bad, I've broken down episodes of Vampire Diaries, and on some level there's a story structure that I think um, can be similar in network and cable. For me, I think where cable becomes more exciting and it would be nice if we were able to do it in Network 2, is that um, characters don't have to be so likable all the time. And your protagonist can also be kind of, and, and this is something that made bait such a joy, an unreliable narrator. And you kind of don't know what's true, and you don't, you don't know what's real, and it's kind of real life where everybody's perspective informs the truth. And it doesn't all have to be wrapped up in a bow at the end of 42 minutes, and you don't have to feel good about your hero, necessarily. And I think that's, that's where cable becomes kind of more exciting and enticing sometimes.
0: I think just in the brief time that I've been doing television, there's just been this enormous swing from when I started to now towards serialization. Like, when I started, you needed, when you were pitching a show, to reassure them constantly that these episodes could air out of order, that there was going to be a beginning, middle, and end to all of them, and you could follow it and it was all based on this idea that you know the holy grail was to get 100 episodes and then sell it into syndication and somebody would put it on at random times and anybody could sit down and watch any episode and everything has swung towards the idea of streaming and binge watching and you know now the holy grail is sort of you sell that to netflix or you have you know you can exploit it in a way like a book that you sell off the chapters of so this idea that you 're really telling a story through a season I think is really exciting for writers and creators, and is now kind of what you 're being that's that 's what they want to hear when you 're pitching it more than how you know we can make an infinite number of these
3: you know, you know I, our first show was a show called The Shield where we sort of had the glee of, of oh my God, we can kill the hero in the fir- or the purported hero in the first episode and then tell seven years more of story and there was that sort of wow, we're out in the schoolyard and we can do anything. Now I think actually it's a much harder challenge because you can do anything. And and in the post-Breaking Bad universe where we've seen all these characters go through so many dark places and we so certainly nobody's afraid in Cable to have an unlikable character. So I think now the challenge is just how do you get to something new and truer and young Orange is a New Black. I think that's a show that finds a really miraculous tone and finds a way to tell an hour drama that's still funny and crazy and moving and... So I, I think that it's, it's actually a harder challenge now because now, now we can say fuck and, and do all these crazy things, and we can have wildly unlikable characters, but how do you then take the next step? So I think it's actually a much more challenging time. Sure, sure. Uh, I can speak to the, the broadcast
1: side of it a little bit since we talked about cable. I think we've also had a bit of a, an evolution, and maybe 15 years ago the good wife would have been kind of all legal case and a little bit of, of grace notes as far as the personal life and now of course you know we consider it a serialized show yeah it has a case every week but the case isn't just kind of a throwaway legal case it's used to bring up and they pick their cases incredibly carefully and it's used to bring up issues that probably Alicia's going through or somebody else they're, they're used for a really important reason and also you know the kings have spoken about this much better than I the creators of The Good Wife but the case has allowed them to slow down a little bit of the, of the serialized storytelling. They have another place to go each week, so they don't have to take these characters so fast, so far, and it's not the only place they have to go for story, and frankly, maybe works even a little bit more true to life. So uh, they certainly have had a tremendous amount of success on broadcast and telling a really character-driven story.
5: Sure. Uh, I think in... A To spin off what everyone said, one of the one of the great things, certainly in in cable, is quite frankly, is viewership loyalty. That you know, I used to hear that a a a a fan of a network show would watch on an average one out of every four shows, and that was considered somebody who watched on a regular basis. On cable shows, you don't miss a single episode. It's all it's a compact that we, you know, the, the filmmakers have made with the audience and whether or not it's, you know, no matter how far it, it, it pushes the narrative, there is a, an understanding that your, your loyal viewers have watched everything that you put in, front, put in front of them and in the order that it was meant to go. And I think, as I say, it's a compact so that, that there's certain expectations and, and rules that you have to follow in order to satisfy that audience.
2: Um, We've talked a little bit about antiheroes already, but I wanted to to jump to that. Um, John Landgraf, the president of FX, uh, said a a couple of years ago that after Walter White, he wasn't sure there was anywhere to go with the antihero for a while. Um, And certainly I think there are shows like Rectify, like Orange is the New Black, um, even like The Americans or Bates Motel, where the people may be doing bad things, but we're much more invested in them, in the good sides of them. Have you sort of felt that as writers and, and executives uh, in in the industry? I think...
0: Uh, <laughs> I, I
2: feel like there was sort
0: of a an anti-hero explosion that, you know, we talked yesterday about sort of an effort to reverse engineer things that were successful and I feel like that's a little bit what happened with kind of the anti-hero model. It was like, you know, the lead of everything was sort of tainted or dark or problematic in some way. And it's not that that I think is a, a bad idea or a dead idea. I think that they felt like copies of copies of copies. So some of the shows that you referenced, I think, feel like new, original, fresh takes on that. And I think that is that that's what it's going to require to sort of go back to that well but i think we just reached a place where it's just not novel anymore to be evil it's like i saw that and i saw it as you can you can't be more evil than walter white was so it is it's totally true where do you go from there
5: no, that's that's true. Walter White and Don Draper and Tony Soprano have sort of mined that pretty pretty deeply. So I think the challenge is probably rather than the the dark sides of the uh, of our protagonists, what are what are those those, those slivers of of hope and, and and altruism?
4: I think that that's one of the things that has been so, in a way, kind of beautiful about Bates Motel is you take the character. Of, I mean, both Norman and Norma. We were talking about it on the panel with. Carrie and Carlton yesterday, those aren't characters who likable wouldn't be the first word you would use to describe those characters as kind of portrayed or embodied in the movie and um, somehow what Carrie and Carlton have done is made them kind of so beautiful and human and real and compelling and accessible and you know how this story is going to end and Carrie was talking about it yesterday, you know the Norma in the movie kind of Feels like she's kind of the shrew who's braided her son into becoming this person, and in the show, it's a it's a different approach. It's like she's loved her son to death, you know, and that's such a more. Um, it's 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 a really sweet reason to turn somebody into who they become, <laughs> even though I mean obviously it doesn't really work out well. Um, so so you, I, ha-
1: you hate the movie
4: and and no no <laughs> I hate the movie no I just love the show and um, and I, there's somehow I, I would never have thought I could fall in love with the character of Norma Bates <laughs> so fully, but somehow the embodiment of really Carrie's voice and Vera's portrayal makes you just feel for her and she's just. A simple person who wants a happy life and can't seem to get it, and there's something in that that I think is super at the core, kind of relatable to all of us. So,
3: yeah, I think I, I was just going to say, on um, I think it's a good question. On, on the Americans, when we were in the early stages of developing that, we sort of fell in love with the glee of, hey, the Russian spies are the good guys and the Americans are the bad guys, and isn't it fun to play that uh, inversion, especially in, in Reaganite America? And you know, it's particularly charged now with what's been going on in the Ukraine, et cetera. But in those early stages, the show was kind of stayed on one level, and I think where the show started to really work for all of us, including John, was when we really plunged into the fact that the show was really about a marriage, and it's really about trust issues in a marriage, and yes, it's set in this hyperbolic framework where everything is, is heightened, but really in every marriage, or in every relationship, you wear certain masks, and you wear certain disguises, and you don't always tell every single bit of the truth to, your, to the person on the other side of the relationship. And, the Americas just became a prism to explore that, and that's where the show went past. Is it a antihero or not an antihero or a pair of antiheroes? Which just went to sort of its, its, its exploration of every human condition.
2: Um, I, I'll, I'll direct this one at Brian first, but anyone else can chime in. Um, obviously, uh, CBS still does mostly dramas that do twenty-two to twenty-four episodes a year. Um, how does that affect their storytelling model? Because you do have quite a few really great shows that are making that many episodes every year.
1: Yeah, the good news is that of late we've been able to adjust if the storytelling kind of mandates it. So last year we did a show called Hostages. They were, you know, Bruckheimer and Warner Brothers, knowing where they sold the show, you know, said, look, we can do 22 of these. We think we can tell a better first season in in fewer. And so we were able to do that. We were able to put it on, as as a plan, 15, 15 episodes, and then we put another show on in that time slot. And that's something that could only happen recently because of the economics that are really boring and I won't go into. Um, and then, you know, when the scripper Under the Dome came to us last year, that felt like, that just, 22 does not, it doesn't feel like I'm, that feels like too long of a meal per season. And we looked at the summer and felt like, gosh, cable has been dominating the summer. Why can't we put something on original? And um, we, we ordered that for 13, put it on, um, had great success with it, really happy with it creatively. And we have Extant coming on this summer also for 13. Reckless is on for 13 this summer. So... Um, while maybe a little trickier in the fall, because you're right, we are still in a traditionally in most of our time slots a 22 to 24 model. If we find a show that we love, we're going to find a way to get it on the air, even if it even if the storytelling mandates maybe a shorter order. Right,
2: um, Liz, you've worked on a number of of 22 episode shows and a number of you know 10 13 episode shows. What's what's different about the writing process in, in those two environments?
4: Well, I think working on 13 episodes just feels so much more humane <laughs> in, a, in, in the world of you can really, you know, on any show, no matter what, you start the season, obviously, with really high hopes and aspirations for kind of having an initial meeting, talking for a couple weeks in kind of a tentpole-y season arc way where you arc out the season, you talk about kind of where you want the characters emotionally to go, um, and then the kind of tent tentpoles that you'll hit and getting them there. And sorry, my voice is so trash. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, I'm just squeak. I'm like um, Peter Brady going through <laughs> puberty. Um, and I think um, I think that what ends up happening with a 22 show, in my experience, when I've worked on shows that are 10 to 13, you kind of have that arc and set, the, set those tent poles, and you're pretty much able to honor them. Like as you go through the season, maybe there's a few little tweaks, but in general, it's what you did at the beginning kind of is where you are at the end what happens in 22 is I think there sometimes can be a little bigger of a panic because it's you know it can be 22 but you um you start pulling everything up because you start running out of story or something doesn't work and you're like oh that wedding we're building toward in 22 what if it was nine and you're like oh they could get and you suddenly you're like oh sure the wedding's nine and then you're like oh my god (laughs) what's the next however many um and so I think that that can kind of be what happens and and usually my experience with 13 is that by the time you hit 13 you know you start you start in a writer's room you're writing the scripts from a showrunner perspective and you're like okay I've kind of gotten that down and then you're like okay now production starts so now that and then you're like oh no there's post and so now that starts and it becomes this kind of panicked assembly line where you have all these things to do I feel like 13 usually you can kind of stay on schedule with it but by the time you hit 22 sometimes what can happen in my experience is that you you're you feel so behind that you don't get to really say like what's the best arc or how are we crafting the best story or how are we taking our time with us instead you're like okay they're getting married and the bridge is falling and we need an act break and we need a, a you know 13 cliffhanger because then we're off the air for nine weeks, and then, you know, it just kind of can become an unwieldy thing. So it kind of, s- smaller chunks, I think, can be great. That's not to say that there are plenty of people, The Good Wife, a great example of people who execute 22 really, really well. So it's not impossible. Criminal Minds, Erica Messer does an amazing job with that show. Um, I think that 22 can be done well, but it... It lends itself to being more of a well-oiled machine. And I think when you're in the first season of a show, you're finding it, so it's hard.
2: Do you all find that drama is more conducive to those smaller orders than comedy? Because it seems like comedy can do 24, 25 and have lots of great episodes in that mix.
5: I was going to point out that that, uh, The Good Wife and CBS very wisely in their Emmy campaign right now Mm -hmm. are pointing out... You know, big deal. Breaking Bad does 10 episodes and they want to get patted on the back and Mad Men does 11 or 12. We do 22, you know. Take, take, take that. And it's true, you know? They do 22 great episodes a season. Not bad.
0: But Brian, do those shows have larger staffs? Like, that was what I always... I would look around at the people and I'd be like, you know, we'd all die if we tried to do 22 of these. And I had, you know, people who worked on ER and they would say, that is the difference. You know, I had a fall script and a spring script. And that was my world. I had to make two scripts amazing in a year. And when you think about it that way, it's possible. But I've never had a staff of that size it was like you know if we did 22 I need you guys to write 21 of them and I mean it just is that is that how they cope I have no idea
4: Really, no, brothers and sisters was a really big staff. It was like 15 staff. people. Yeah. And it is... It becomes this assembly line where people are out of the room. I mean, sometimes, especially when you're a lower-level writer, you go to break your story and it's you and the writer's assistant because someone's on set, some, two people are writing, two, you know, everyone... Someone's in their outline process and it's like you and the... Writer's assistant, and you're like, so what should we do? Yeah, the, um, yeah the, <laughs> not panicking.
1: <laughs> yeah, the days of the size of the ER staff are are, pr- are pr- pretty much over. But the, the broadcast staffs, look, you get to spend your money in a, in a in a number of ways. You can go much higher level, and you lose a few you lose a few bodies in the room, or you know maybe a more mid level staff and get some more. But you're right, when you have you absolutely, if you've got somebody off on set and somebody you know two people off to script, you don't have a lot of people in the room to help. To help break. Mm-hmm. So I mean, you know, that showrunner who is the, kind of your anchor and guiding the ship at the at, at the front. Can you be an anchor and guide the ship? I think
0: so. Yeah, I think that's how it's usually done. Not a big, not a big
1: sailor. i
4: was a coxswain. You can, <laughs> you're a coxswain. Yeah, you can uh, like weigh it uh, down, <laughs> yet steer it. When too. you're
0: when, <laughs> when you're going through.
1: You know Rob Doherty on on Elementary. The guy has an absolute vision for that show. Uh, you know his staff his staff is incredibly important to him. But you can, no matter how few of you are in the room, you're always going to be looking to him. For you know, keeping the keeping the ship pointed right and keep those trains running on time. ships train, keep the trains running on time. Um, when you get into, of course, real trouble is when maybe you, the vision isn't quite there. You had a vision for say eight or nine of that season, and you think you'll figure it out, and then you're you're in pretty big trouble with a, a small room and not sure where to go for the the last twelve of your order.
4: Do you think what also um, sometimes with the smaller shows like I've noticed this with. Bates and on Astronaut Wives Club now, um, you have more of a prep time. Like on Bates, we had almost all of the scripts for season two, you know, at least two thirds written by the time we started shooting. Where sometimes my experience on network shows is, you know, pilots get picked up mid May, you're starting the room June 1st. By the end of June, beginning of July, you have to have the first script for prep. So it's like you're already starting almost two months behind usually writers have such a small lead time and you're trying to find the show talk about arcs and poles, but you don't even get time to do that because you're like oh we need to already have episode one broken so i think or two whatever i think
1: it's a it's a huge deal absolutely and you're seeing hiatuses on returning shows that are smaller and so i know J- jonah nolan on person of interest i think the guy took like a week off and was right back it, all in an effort of course, to make his show the best it could be and what he learned through two seasons is I've got to try to find a way to get ahead. Um, but I think it's a really big deal and, and makes part part of what makes, only part of what makes the 22 to 24 challenging.
5: Are there any of those David Kellys around anymore who would write, write every single episode of a 20-some-odd
1: season? There are definitely... Showrunners, where every episode is certainly going through their computer, some in a much
3: larger. <laughs> but way you know than
0: the other. price of that for David and Aaron, you know, is yeah. that is you had their voice exploded off the page, and then that's where their involvement in the show ended. And even you know, Monk had a very similar price. It's like the producing director created did everything after that. You know, so I think there are those people who can write everything, but I think when you think of what you ask of a showrunner to run the show. The writing is only one component of it. I, I don't know how you could write every episode, edit every episode, be present on set for every. It's like it's just an inhuman amount of work. Just lean it I'm down. just really trying to get that to not happen. <laughs>
2: um uh, david uh uh, coming from the studio side it seems like everybody is jumping into the pool in terms of putting content on the air now um when you are coming up with ideas for these shows for for dramas especially like do you target them towards certain outlets or do you have the uh, do you have the idea and then eventually think this might be an fx show this might be a fox show this might be a i don't know
3: oxygen network show well first of all rarely do do I or my colleagues, quote, have the idea. Usually an idea is brought to us. Um, The the occasions where we've had ideas, those are usually like the big (laughs) failures. Um, I won't name names. Uh, But, uh, no, I I I think when a show comes to us and we really traffic uh, 99% in the cable universe, we're not really in the broadcast universe, but there is such a gamut now of of not only cable networks but digital platforms, Netflix, somewhere, uh, Amazon, Hulu, et etc. So there's probably I mean we don't there are a number of networks that we can't sell to for deal reasons, and still there's probably 20 different places we can go. Uh, so we when we are looking at an idea, I mean, we do it, we do actually do a fair bit of internal development. We'll commission scripts. We'll write them internally see what the script then tells us about where that script belongs sometimes an idea comes in and you sort of naturally think oh this is a slam dunk for FX or AMC or HBO or someplace." and sometimes you don't really know until you develop the material And so we kind of do 50-50 in terms of that and, and then Obviously, there are many things we develop we don't sell, um, uh, we fail, uh, but there are many things also that we've gone out with, and we've had more than one person interested, and then we've had uh, the luxury of trying to figure out where the best home was for something. What dictates if you write it internally or if you take it out as a pitch? It's really subjective. It's a good question. Uh, I mean, I think if. Thank, co- you. Thank you. Um, <laughs> you. You can keep doing this. No, I, I, I think if it feels easy, if it feels like, oh, it's a writer who I know that four places really love this writer and it's a very easy pitch, we'll probably pitch it. If it's a writer who's less known, if it's a writer who we're willing to take the flyer with, but maybe the writer isn't that proven, or maybe it's just a harder idea to pitch. I mean, and there are times when we've pitched things, failed. Said we like it anyway. Commissioned the script, and then we sold it as a finished script. So, so sometimes we actually do both.
2: Um, uh, Mark, you uh, with Breaking Bad had a huge success in Netflix, sort of bringing people to that show. Um, in your experience working on that show, and, and I'm sure some of the rest of you can speak to this, like what, how are people writing toward, directing toward, producing these dramas toward that streaming experience of people binge watching, you know, all the episodes at one night.
5: Well, needless to say, we didn't anticipate that, and, and AMC has, has asked me not to give Netflix too much, uh, too much credit, but uh, they are in competition now, but yes, it was thanks to Netflix that, that Breaking Bad really became the juggernaut that it became, because remember, for four seasons, it was that little little show that could, you know, and, and it had its fans, but wasn't doing you know, particularly well. I, it's it's all new. It's it's. Uh, I'd love to hear what everyone else says to it. I don't know yet. You know, I'm fascinated by these series, these uh, 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 in which um, an entire season is available immediately, and how you know all of a sudden there are ten episodes of of this show or that show. I'm not quite sure what that means to us in terms of the creative process or what your responsibilities are to that audience because there are people who are going to you know all of a sudden something you spent close to a year doing they will have consumed and somehow you know digested and and moved on after two days uh... and i'm i'm not sure it's a really good question but i can't answer it yet
3: we had a really interesting experience on on a show that we did called the killing which we did for amc and um... Thank you. Uh, and for the first, you know, it was a, it, the show had an w- incredibly weird ride where everybody was liked the show in season one, and then we we pissed a few people off and we didn't end it on season one the way people wanted us to, and then in season two the ratings dropped and AMC canceled the show. And then Netflix, who who we had sold the show to between seasons one and season two, they came to us and said, well, the show's kind of working for us, so can we pay you some more money and get the rights earlier, get an earlier window in the show? So because Netflix stepped up, we were able to make the show in season three still for AMC, but but we allowed them to pay a smaller license fee, and Netflix paid a bigger license fee, and that still worked. And then season three, the ratings didn't go up, and they canceled us again. We were canceled twice. And Netflix... went back to Netflix and they said well the show is still kind of working for us so we are doing our fourth and final season for Netflix no AMC, it will post it on August 1st and thank God for Netflix that they allowed us to finish the show in a way that we were all really proud of so that's I think a really interesting example of how a show didn't work for a traditional network but was working for a digital platform and, and, uh, and just during the course of making that show the whole MO evolved uh, maybe Liz and Kyle
2: can speak to this how is the the writing process affected by knowing that people might binge it or by knowing that they'll probably be watching it on DVR and zapping through the commercials
0: well uh, I always assume no one will be watching it um, and I've been right uh, you know I, the, I guess it, it's I haven't honestly. I haven't had the luxury of thinking about it in terms of it being streamed or DVR. I've always been in a world of commercials, and you know, and I think that's one of the things. I guess is what I really. It's it's jarring and confusing, but I also really uh, respect it about Mad Men is that it just tells its story. You know, there uh, and it, again, it may just be that I'm not very good, but I always found that like trying to create six artificial cliffhangers per 42 minutes is, like, a pretty... Like, these people must lead crazy lives. They're, like, every six minutes, you're like, no way! It just... It's a lot to ask of a story. So I think, you know, being released from that and, you know, really just being able to just tell the story, I think... uh it sounds pretty good. I think I might try that.
4: Yeah, I was going to say, I think... I haven't really had the luxury of having to worry about that either, but I think it um, for me it's less it doesn't change my writing experience, but it does change your viewing experience in that um, like I'm really, like obviously Orange is the New Black has premiered while we've been at ATX and I can't wait to kind of get home and watch it all, and you feel this pressure to kind of watch it all quickly so you can talk about it with people because you know people will be watching it and talking about it Um, but there's something so nice about kind of being able to slow it down and getting to talk about every episode in increments and how the season progresses in the arc rather than having to kind of talk about it, the whole thing all at once. So I feel like it's changed that a little bit. Um, You don't really get to have those kind of water coolery specific conversations, Um, but it's nice to have access to it quickly and be able to kind of tune in when you want. So I guess there's a balance.
0: I feel like what he was saying about, you know, the killing in Netflix and what Netflix has sort of uncovered is that there's this other layer of viewer. Like, it's always been about appointment television. And, you know, the killing is something that is, it's not an appointment at all. But it's like that book that's on your nightstand and you are still reading it. And when you pick it up, you're like, oh, no, I, I do like this book. And I eventually recommend it to my friends. But even in a you know even in the cable universe where you know the the demands of the ratings and the advertising are less than they are in broadcast, something like The Killing doesn't get there. But for somebody like Netflix, where as long as you keep paying to have the book accessible, that show works for them. And it's this other way that it turns out we can make TV, and there are consumers for it.
2: Um, you mentioned this a, a little bit earlier, Brian, but we, we were talking about. Um, how like every show now has some serialized aspect to it. Pretty much every drama. Um, does the audience seems more comfortable with that uh, even than they were five ten years ago? Um, what do you attribute that that rise to then? If it not necessarily the DVR or the binge watching. You know I, I think the audience is always attracted
1: to just great writing, great characters, great writing. And I think that certainly on broadcast for a while, yeah, the great writing. Seem to be maybe a little bit more in very close-ended storytelling. Maybe they learn lessons from The Sopranos, as as was brought up today. I don't know where the lessons came from, but I mean, we're still just attracted to good writing. You know, I mean, we talked about antihero. I like, you know, I don't think that it's great writing because it has an antihero, and I don't think that you know that if you have an antihero, it's necessarily great writing. I, I, I think that you just are drawn to what you're drawn to, and I find myself watching shows. On broadcast, on cable, uh, varying degrees of serialization. But again, I, I don't think that. I don't know. I, I think that people have have loved television and loved dramas for a long time, and maybe now more than ever, they're able to really sink their teeth into the characters and explore them throughout seasons, maybe in a way that they haven't been able to. I don't know. I can. I can I'll probably only speak to more recent but TV.
5: It's a lot more difficult in your case because you're you're. Your uh, because your uh, um, because your loyal viewers aren't watching every episode, you, so you can only do so much. You can't have something something critical happen and have you know a, a third of your viewers have, have completely missed it.
1: Yeah, it's not something you know. We don't tell the writers that's not a lesson that gets preached anymore. You know, I know what you're saying. That the, the stat that Mark was talking about, I think it was. If somebody said they are an ER viewer, you know, in in the in the mid nineties, then Nielsen, I think, figured out they were only watching one out of four. I think now, if you, it's not something that we're telling our showrunners, oh, don't, don't put a huge serialized plot point here because then people won't catch up. I think more than ever they have the ability to go to our, you know, on CBS.com. If you're watching Scandal, you go to ABC.com. You can go to The internet and find quite a bit of episodes to catch up and then if it is going to be more like season season long binging that's something that can happen after the season so our broadcast viewers have more access to catch up um, than they ever have before not to mention their dvr so i think the creators are having
3: more leeway than ever before as far as the serialization I i would actually take it a step further i think other than brian's network it's impossible to sell a show that's not serialized there's just no market for it I mean and it's actually the pendulum has swung so far the other way I mean for us it's it's fun to tell a serialized show and and, and there's great pleasure in doing something that's novelistic in, in length but but it's almost like a show that is a pure closed-ended show short of CBS there's just there's just no place to take it I'm not sure that pendulum won't swing back a little bit I mean I, I feel like we are hitting kind of an extreme of serialization and Things like Netflix have, have, have accounted for that, but I still think there are there are, can be pleasures for the closed-ended show that can find homes ultimately other than CBS.
2: I was I was just going to ask a variation on that: Do we think there is still room for the the standalone show? Like uh, Louis, this is a terrible example because it's not a drama and it's right now doing a very serialized season. But Louis had long seasons where like no episode had anything to do with each other, and that was. Obviously very influential in comedy, but it seems like drama has really gotten away from... Do, do we see room to go back to that, um, you know, that sort of model? Uh,
0: yeah, I mean, the comedy, you sort of asked that earlier. I mean, I think comedy lends itself to that in that it's sort of a, it's a laugh delivery mechanism. So in a half hour, you've either succeeded or failed in your mission, I think, you know, for years that's why, you know, cop, doctor, lawyer was television because those there is a story within the story and it can begin and middle and end and then, you know, there's some ongoing things that you may or may not follow depending on the degree of serialization. But, I, you know, I'm trying to think of what a dramatic show without one of those engines would be. I mean, it just, it feels like, Closed-ended drama is a show about somebody doing a job. So that job better have high stakes and be really interesting. And so I think obviously, I mean, CBS proves there are still huge audiences for people who are interested in predominantly closed-ended shows about people doing those jobs. I just, I think outside of that, I would love to see a family drama. I'd love to see Parenthood that was not serialized. Just every week, just to see how someone would do that.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the audience isn't interested in just watching people come and do a job. We've found, I mean, we are looking for a fascinating character who's coming in, and maybe they're doing a job. Again, I could, we're happy to do, and I guess I'm just speaking for CBS here, but you, know, you can extrapolate it maybe to other broadcasts. But, you know, Under the Dome is purely serialized, but, you know, elementary w- people we hear time and time again, they are coming to watch a character who they find fascinating, and they're watching a relationship unfold between he and a female Watson, the likes of which they've never seen. It has nothing to do with will they or won't they. It's literally, there's. It's he's almost not human, and so to watch her chip away at him and see if he can become just slightly human. Is there anything to connect with there? And watching him have a point of view on that um, is what the audience is coming for. If it was just a guy named Sherlock Holmes solving a crime every week, I, 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 don't, think, I don't think our audience would, would care either. But um, I don't know they're endlessly fascinated with him, with her, and how the relationship is moving forward. Woo!
2: <laughs> um, we're going to throw to your questions in a bit here, so start thinking of them. Um, but uh, I, this, I guess, is probably we'll start with Liz. But um, you've done a lot of shows, worked on a lot of shows where it's just stories about very normal people having sort of normal lives, um, even if there's sort of a melodramatic soapy aspect. Um, but it seems like that's kind of going away. Like, like we had, we've had thirty something, my so-called life. Um, now we have Parenthood, but no, like nobody really watches it. Um, rectifies another
4: show. I do. Show. <laughs> yeah. I watch
2: like, it. Rectifies another show that's about just very normal people in normal, almost normal situations. Um, do we think there's room for these stories, you know, these sort of kitchen sink dramas, or is it all very heightened realities right now?
4: I mean, I don't know the answer to that for sure. I, of course, selfishly, <laughs> since it's kind of what I do, I would love to think that there's room for them. Um, I I miss that. Um, in network television, I... I don't like that parenthood is the only place I can kind of feel like I can tune in to watch something, not that I'm a parent, but that it feels like it resembles my life. Um, So selfishly, I really hope that there's room for stories like that on more than... um, I mean, we kind of talk about it, you know, I talk about it with writer friends all the time, and ABC Family is kind of doing in some ways what the old WB did or even uh, what CW was more when I had Life Unexpected on it. Um, Oh, my God, I forgot the name of the show for a second. Um, (laughs) (laughs) That was sad. (laughs) I'm like, uh, um, but, um, yeah, you want to think there's room for that. And, I mean, Girls is an example of a show that isn't particularly high concept, but is very true to reality. So I think that there's a way, and in a way, that's the high concept of it, that it's so real. So uh, maybe that's the way that we'll go. I don't know. But uh, yeah, I would selfishly really love, selfishly as a writer, and even more selfishly as a viewer, love to believe that there's, there's, Room for that um, on all the networks. I know, you know, Life Unexpected was an example of a show where I developed it originally with ABC Studios. And at the time, and I don't think it's probably changed, ABC Network wasn't that interested in having a show on the air that had a teenager in it. Um, that was very different, for instance. I was Winnie Holzman's assistant on Once and Again. That was a show with plenty of adults and plenty of teenagers, much obviously in the vein of 30-something, where everybody kind of got full-fledged stories and got to be real people. So when you talk about the pendulum swinging, I, I would love to see it swing back.
0: I think there's totally room for those shows, and the reason that you don't see them is that, you know, TV for a long time has been largely a pitch-based medium, and those there's no hook in those pitches. They're execution-dependent, you watch Parenthood because it turns out it's awesome, but if I just, t- it's a story about a family. It's like, well, I've seen those, I have a family, they're not very interesting. So <laughs> I think you're seeing cable is driving a lot of people to do more development on their own, to show something, like there's a spec market for TV, which didn't exist even you know 10 years ago, five years ago. And I think as people prove it on the page, First, and they're not just selling what doesn't sound like a mind-blowing concept, then you will find more and more of those shows. I think will start to make their way
3: on. Yeah, we, without meaning to sound cynical, I, I think the, I think it's both. It's partly it's the pitch problem. It's partly the network's perception of how to market a show. I, I think you talk to somebody like John Landgraf who will. Constantly cite the number of shows that are available, scripted shows that are available. Not even to mention reality shows, but uh, uh, that you, now that you're in, depending on how you count, 150, 170, nobody can watch this many shows. Nobody can market this many shows. So things that are conceptual, things that are, oh my God, I've never seen that. I would argue, Girls is not really for most people's experience about ordinary people. I think, like, uh, I, I think it's, I think, it, I think HBO sort of the market down on the shock value of this is what girls that age are really doing, saying how they're behaving. But uh, I, I think a, any, any cable network is sort of thinking in large part of how do I cut through the clutter? How do I make you pay attention to this show? And the market's really different than it was 10 years ago. There's, there's so much more out there. How do you get attention? And I, I think that's so prevalent on, on networks' minds. And as people who are selling to networks or, or creating for networks – you got to put yourself in their head a little bit and that that's the problem with the ordinary people thing.
2: Uh, I'll just I'll I'll ask Mark how you guys have handled this on rectify because that's that obviously has a hook but it's also about a, a guy just returning to ordinary life after being in prison.
5: Um yeah, rectify, I don't know how many of you've seen it is a, is is very much a family show and not a lot happens and we uh, I'm what I'm particularly thrilled about is we have the courage of our conviction in terms of our storytelling It's it's very methodical it's not there's nothing fast to it there are no bank robberies or car chases and it is about quite frankly a guy who's reinserted back into his hometown and his family after nineteen years on death row and it's really not so much about him but it's about the family the town all around them, everybody who's compromised. And and I think it, it comes down to what we're all saying. It's None of us is really talking about plot or action. We're all talking about character. And if characters... I started my career, I produced 12 movies of Barry Levinson. The first movie we did is Diner, and nothing happens in Diner. It's just about characters. And if you're fascinated by characters, you can sit there and watch two people, you know, sit and have dinner together and talk, and you're as an audience viewer, you're fine.
4: I was going to say, um, on the Bates panel yesterday, someone asked a question about to Carrie about parenthood for, versus Bates, and it was interesting. They were saying, does it feel like such a departure because Bates is such a darker show? And she was saying, I don't feel that way, <laughs> strangely. She was saying they both just seem about like, People and families trying to kind of do what's best for their family. But, of course, the difference in selling it is that Bates has the hooky marketing aspect. Um, and I think that even now when, when myself or other people go to pitch pilots, I mean, one of the first things even our agents tell us to think about is, well, how would it be marketed I'm like, I don't know.
0: Which, by the way, you take... <laughs> struggling to
4: think of an idea. <laughs>
0: I mean, if you take parenthood off of parenthood, that show doesn't happen. Like, the fact that it was based on an existing piece of material, even if nobody had seen it, it was like, well, all right, that's a justification for doing a show about a family, mm-hmm. that it was already a movie. Mm-hmm.
2: Okay. Um, uh, pivoting off of that, and this will be my, my last before throwing to you guys, um, Two really big movements right now are these anthology miniseries like Fargo, True Detective, uh, American Horror Story, um, and also adaptations, uh, The Walking Dead and Game of Thrones being sort of the, the big talks there. How has that, uh, how has that shifted your, your, how you think about these things and how do you approach an adaptation or one of these season-long stories that's sort of a standalone season and then you do another story in the same universe?
0: I mean, it sounds thrilling. It sounds exciting. I mean, you can do... I was talking to Noah about this last night. Like, they, they realized they could literally do anything. There were no rules, and if there were, then they tried to find them and bend them just because they could. I mean, that that sounds amazing. Also, having spoken to some of the people involved with True Detective, there's a little bit of, like, crap. We, like, totally have to reinvent the wheel. Like, you know, there there is... What you have is a template for amazingness, so that's a great bar to set for yourself. And then, you know, and then you like don't have any of your Lincoln Logs. I don't know what you had transportation. I don't know what I'm. Anyways, you know, you just you got You have to be amazing in an all new way. So I think they're both thrilling and challenging. And as far as the you know the the adaptations of it, I mean, I think it's the same thing that you saw. And we'll continue to see forever. It's just, it's it's a scary, huge risk to put millions of dollars into something and everybody's time, and say, you know, people will come. So you look for anything that indicates to you they would be predisposed to come. These books sold, or that people have heard of this movie. And when you don't have that, it's a huge leap of faith to just say, I don't know. We'll try it. And I think, uh, you know, when those don't work out. People really run for the cover of what? What what have you read? What can we do?
2: Any thoughts on that from a a network or studio perspective?
3: You go ahead, David. Well, look, they're they're two different questions. I think that the adaptation thing. I think Kyle's exactly right. That's people, and we we are certainly as guilty of it as anybody, trying to chase a title that will help you sell a show, um, Bates Motel, you know, whatever whatever it is. So, uh, I think valuable titles it's it's you know we are now in a, in a marketplace where it's hard to get a show on the air there's a lot of people trying trying so something that has pre-existing awareness that's really valuable um, you know obviously try not every title not every movie or graphic novel or uh, is a series so sometimes a title is not going to get you all the way there and so 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 a lot of titles we look at we don't end up pursuing the 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 anthology thing is is you know, is fascinating. And, you know, I don't think we would have seen True Detective on the air if that had been a pitch. I think the fact that that was a spec that then was packaged brilliantly and went out to the marketplace with all those people involved got that piece to be the bidding war that it became. But had had Nick run around and just pitched that idea, I don't think we would have seen it. Uh, I I think that uh, American Horror Story wouldn't have gotten on the air without it coming from Ryan. Uh, So I, I think that many of... I think many of the networks are still suspicious around anthology, and I think anthology is incredibly dependent upon auspices, upon who's involved and having something that has enough star power behind it. Star power can be a writer, too. uh, That makes people think, well, we can still market it in a second, third, and fourth season, even if we have to change casts. So I don't know that that's going to become the new thing, but I think there will be writers and, and actors who will be attracted to it that will allow some of these things to continue to be interesting experiments
2: okay Uh, questions out there from anyone
0: I'm a huge proponent of killing pilot season in that I just feel like it's, it's a crazy like demolition derby that doesn't do anything good for anybody that said I don't think a single one of my shows would have advanced in a world where there was no pilot season exactly for the reasons that you're saying because if you're going to make Very few bets. You can try and place them on the things that feel the surest, the most marketable. And you know, I've existed at this fringe where it's like, eh, I don't know. Let's let's see what he does. And like, you know, I'm the the last script picked up, the last show picked up to pilot, and the last pilot picked up to series, because it's it's like, let's see what happens. I I have no idea why the third people didn't understand what was going to happen based on the previous two, but you (laughs) you know. So I've really benefited from that. And I think cable, again, uh, I think all of this is trending badly for me. But, you know, cable is, I think, going to collapse into the... Essentially, you've funded a huge number of channels. You know, you funded the Sundance channel without knowing you were doing it. It just existed. And then the Sundance channel was like, hey, we exist. We should put some stuff on and see if people come over here. But when you have to pick out your channels... You're going to stop saying, I don't watch the Sundance channel. What is it? A dollar a month? No way. So it's not there to incubate something like Rectify. So I think the economics point to something where everything collapses, and it's like the film business. You, know, you need tentpole stuff, and then there's this fringy stuff that I think gets even fringier. So we've benefited from the crazy system that we have. I just think the economics of the crazy system are going to take those benefits away.
1: Yeah, I guess I can only speak to my specific situation. But we, CBS, is very traditional. We have a pitch season. Everybody's writing their pilots around the same time. We pick all of our pilot. We pick up, you know, say ten drama pilots within a, a week of each other. We're shooting them all, and, and, and we're shooting them all at the same time. We pick them all up for upfronts. Um, and certainly, we see that it's a flawed system. We know that we're casting at the same time. We're casting against ourselves. We're casting against everybody else. We see it, of course, and yet there is something...
0: I'm waiting for this part.
1: (laughs) The part is that I was able to buy 50 things in three months and get 50 scripts from 50 working writers. I got to shoot 10 pilots. I I got the green light to shoot 10 pilots all within a week of each other. And four of those things, five of those things, this year six of those things got ordered to series. The dates force decisions. Mark, how long have you had 30 different films in development with no dates forcing any decisions? There's something incredibly satisfying about the decisions being made and these shows going forward. And, and for the ones that aren't going forward, they found out swiftly as well. But the audience, something that I buy, you know, everything that we put on in September is something that, uh, that we bought the prior August and, and September. And that, to me, is pretty incredible. And again, we've seen when you aren't forced into decisions in features, you can be languishing in development for, for 15 years. And that that's not existing where, where I work.
0: And not to... Uh, argue or debate. I just feel like the dates also drive compromises. And the more you're trying to shovel through that system, the less people like yourself can attend to any individual thing. You have 10 shows that you're putting out fires on instead of four. You have the actors that you loved spread over 10 pieces of material instead of four. Like, it's not that I think the 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 dates and the pressure which i actually think is incredibly helpful in tv otherwise we would all do we would be very slow i think writers are predisposed to want forever with it and you know it's been demonstrated that amazing television can be made on a schedule i just think the bar is so much higher in tv now that stuff that's sort of good enough or the best of the the scrum that we created it's not as good as the stuff that comes from a different process. And I think that ultimately the viewers are going to drive the change because the things that result from the traditional pilot season, I just I don't think they consistently reach the level of things that come from a different
2: perspective. David, did you, you look like you had something to
3: add? No, the only thing I was going to say is I I, I think that, that we're in a marketplace that will have some networks that will be shooting traditional pilots. Cable networks, even though they aren't bound by a pilot season, most cable networks shoot pilots. Not all of them. Most of them do. Uh, and I would suspect the next head of FBC will probably be shooting some pilots. Uh, right there. Uh, you about
4: the- yeah, I think so. Kyle might speak to this better than me, but... <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, you know, when I, there's definitely a dramatic structure, I mean, I kind of come from a very, most of my work has kind of been in network television, not cable, so I have a very kind of methodical network structure, but you can break down, I mean, the first season of Breaking Bad, if you want to look at, like, perfect storytelling, episodic structure, the third episode of season one and the 6th episode of season 1 of breaking bad are the most I actually when I worked with RJ Cutler when we were starting Nashville I actually went into his office and broke a breaking bad episode on his whiteboard just so we could both look at perfect television structure and then be like okay let's start so yeah third and the I think 3rd in the 6th
5: I'll have to go back and look at those. <laughs> I
4: think they're perfect. It's, to me, it's like perfect television. It's the basement.
5: You know, it's, it's a definition of, of drama. You know drama, and, and you talk about. I used to do this in, in movies. You know, there's there's the big drama. There's the the passenger who has to land the 747 when the pilot's had a heart attack, or there's drama when a character just has to decide to do the right thing, and there's no there's no action to it. it's just the, he, he or she will spend a, a, an hour trying to decide what to do, and that can be as riveting as a big big uh, big sort of dramatic point, and and I think that's what so much of television is doing right now. It's all dramatic in its way. It's just, it's, some of it is very, very sort of
2: imperceptible. Okay, uh, Right there. Killing um, <coughs> the is a
3: perfect example, but I wanted to ask Kyle, uh, when you are very
5: involved in a story and you obviously love it, you can tell by the way you tell it, uh, and the show gets canceled, as a viewer, I would love to hear what the writer
1: had to say about
0: you. this is what I You'd be just releasing it like, here's what we would have done. Uh, you know, we did... I don't know. for We did it until I felt like it's going to be sad if that's my thing. But we used to... <laughs> you know, We would screen the unaired episodes of uh, Lone Star. And then I would sort of pitch out the rest of the season. Because just, you know, that one... The, these other shows, we, we got to make them all. Awake, they happened to air them all. Uh, you know, it feels like you got it out. You know, that really was... We were just getting the end of the season worked out, and we were super excited about it. And we thought, like, you just you feel like you have something up your sleeve, and then like your magic show gets canceled. So that one that one hurt a little more than the others. But yeah, you you sometimes wish you could still do the trick for people.
2: Right here. Yes.
3: Oh yeah, I I think the whole. I can't speak to. I don't. I don't know that it's that extreme in broadcast or how soon that out. But certainly in cable, you know what. You know we used to think of as absolutely. You knew you were going to get thirteen. Well, now that not that many networks even do thirteen. Now it's more closer to ten. And then you know True Detective was eight, and Mark Show Rectify was six, and and uh, you know I, I think that networks. Want to spend less money, uh, and especially as, as there 's experimentation with going straight to series, but maybe not going straight to thirteen going straight to six or or, or uh, you know now that that long form, thanks to Kevin Costner has kind of come back, and people are looking at mini series slash limited series, which sometimes are backdoor pilots sometimes aren 't. Uh, You know, the idea of doing a four-hour that could be a backdoor pilot or a six... So, yeah, I I think that that networks want to spend less. They want to spread their chips across the table. uh, So I I think we're seeing shorter orders all over the place. Yeah, you're going to see it in
1: broadcast as well. I can think of examples uh, for all of us, including CBS, that are in development or, or frankly, shooting. Uh, Oh,
4: oh, I was going to say it's also interesting with Bates. That was a show that was initially picked up for six episodes... They arced it out, wrote the episodes. Six, if if people watch the first season of Bates, you'll remember episode six felt like a season finale. And it's because it was. But then the network fell in love with it and they were like, do four more. And they're like, oh no. And so it was a big decision. Do we try to go back and retroactively re-break the stories to still make six, the now episode 10 finale? But they didn't. Um, They kept it intact and they said, okay, now how can we add kind of this four episode arc that's gonna feel even bigger than this humongous thing that happened in episode six. So when you watch structurally the season one of Bates, it's pretty exciting. Yeah.
1: And, sorry, they fell in love not, not with the ratings, they just fell in love creatively with the yeah. with the scripts or the shot episodes. What was it? Do you know? Yeah.
4: I think it was the scripts. Wow, I think great. it was that they fell in love with the scripts. I don't think it had yeah. Yeah.
2: That's great. Next question. I can't really see over here. So okay, somebody over here is asking a question. Um, it seems like the success of
0: shows like on HBO and AMC aren't bound by traditional fall, spring, uh, fall, and you know starting in the spring kind of season. Do you think the the, the broadcast networks will
1: ever move away from the seasonality of uh, mm. you know just just so like when pilot season happens, not all competing. It's totally. Uh, Absolutely. We're just trying it, trying it this year. Everybody's trying it. Um, uh, There are certainly going to be fall launches, but more than ever, what you aren't going to see is what traditionally was you know you, you air 13 and you have breaks and, and reruns and then you come back for your back nine you're going to see a lot of playing around with within within time slots putting on original shows in there maybe for shorter orders coming on at different times of the year and to your point not just kind of fall then mid season it's, it's much more of a year round we talked about year round development but it's much more of a year round launch strategy that extends obviously to summer but um, uh, the president of CBS recently <laughs> said she's retiring the phrase midseason, and, and I get it. And, and scheduling is fi- and marketing are following through. It's just ca- kind of let's find strategic places to put these shows on. Yeah. Up next?
2: All right, I'll ask one more. <laughs> um, we talked about all these different trends, all these different things. What are where do you think? TV drama is headed. What do you think the future is? Is there is there a show you can point to, or a trend you can point to, or just an area that hasn't been explored yet that you think is is you know needs to be explored?
0: I'm literally making this up as I begin to answer your question. <laughs> like uh, I think someone asked Katems yesterday about like the Katems verse, like the idea of you know, you talked about sort of uh, writer-driven, sort of, you know th- these things. If Joss Whedon did a series of shows that were interconnected, that the characters in one knew the other, you know, you, they've been crossover things, but they feel sort of false. You know, I, I feel like that the Marvel universe of television is something that hasn't really been explored. That is very ripe to. You know, then you have the halo effect of the first to the second. Like I can see both how creatively it would be really exciting and economically how one could feed the other.
2: Any other thoughts or answers? <laughs> okay, that's tough. <laughs> uh, there's somebody way in the back there. Uh, yeah, do you had your hand up? I think. <laughs> That's cool. So, this is probably a question for Kyle. So, you've had some series
4: that were canceled. All of them? So-
0: Sure, totally. I mean, there's obviously everything to recommend, uh, yeah, it sounds good. (laughs) It's weird, I get, I get emotional when people ask me why I keep doing network, and it's like, uh, the people who gave me my shot, you, like, want to pay them back, like you feel like you owe them a good show. Wow, this is terrible, I'm so sorry.
2: Kyle, you have had shows on ABC, NBC, and Fox. You're sitting next to somebody from CBS. Oh, we
1: tried to buy you all of them. You no, can no. finish out your bingo
2: card right now.
1: No, no, no. There's yeah. You, you <laughs> when Kyle Killen comes through your door with a pitch, you buy it. He is uh, obviously one of the best writers in town, and we have tried to buy pitches from Kyle Killen, and we will continue to try to buy shows from Kyle Killen. He's the George Clooney of, of writers. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: like- that is extraordinarily like, kind of... You could ask you a question, like, honestly, like, seriously, at this point, like, why? Because why you would just you... Like, know. wouldn't you say to yourself, no, he's... We like him, and he's kind of good, but, like, that's not going to work. Like, why would we do that?
1: No, those... We... we, we CBS, well, your show's going to work on CBS. Oh, well, the other thing, Kyle. <laughs> there is <was> cable, Kyle. <laughs> <laughs> sit, we could sit back, David.
2: We could talk We could
3: talk later. <laughs> Uh, there's somebody way in the back with the beard. I'm not sure what you mean. Describe, describe the show that you would...
4: But Do you mean literally High Art the movie?
3: I was going to say, let's do that adaptation.
4: <laughs> <laughs> I think there's room for that.
2: <laughs> I, 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 I th- let me just... I think probably like narrative-free. You know, like there are art films that have basically no narrative. Um, is sort of the a frontier that TV hasn't really done. Rectify is very low narrative, but it has a narrative. Like Treme had basically no narrative. I, I think I think that's what you're talking about. Yeah, that is Yeah, I mean, there, obviously HBO tried Treme and
0: the Sunday. I mean, I think it's. It's people who either need to experiment to get noticed or the people who have the luxury of experimenting because they have other things that are extraordinarily successful. I mean, I think in TV you find universally the people who make it love it. Like, the executives love it. The presidents, like, they're in it because this is what they care about the most. And they do see everything, so they are excited by things that are different. And we all want to be a part of something that changes the way we talk about the form. It just... Treme is a good example. I think there are ceilings for shows like that, just like there are very hard ceilings for, for art films. You know, there is a crowd that they appeal to, and there are other people who just, they, they feel like you're confused if you think that is a movie. Like It just doesn't reach them, or, or it doesn't do what it's supposed to for them.
3: I think Louis is art, high art. I think Louis is actually making tone poems, uh, and he's actually breaking the form and t- telling stories that don't have any kind of traditional narrative, and Are incredibly visual and evocative, and I can't believe what he fucking does every week. So I I think he's actually doing it.
2: On that note, we are over time, so we're done for the day. Thank you to our panelists. Hope you enjoyed.
3: Now leaving Nerdist.com.